0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us start our presentation of tonight. The discourse continues with one of the last two or three presentations from the Tibetan yoga, the so-called yoga of the disciple, yesterday, last time, that is, we uh, concluded with a presentation of the chapter or paragraph, which was called the Ten Necessary Things. Ten Necessary Things, as the Tibetan gurus saw them, for one practicing Yoga in their lineages. And the chapter number 23 is sweetly coming and being called the 10 unnecessary things. If we showed 10 necessary things, here are 10 unnecessary things very beautifully formulated, very cleverly formulated how clearly, how much this tells about the spiritual quest and about the human nature of the seeker. The first one will clarify immediately in which way the Tibetan yogis were thinking. The first of the so-called unnecessary things. One, if the ultimate nature of the mind be realized no longer is it necessary to listen to or meditate upon religious teachings. It's as simple as that. Religion and spiritual practice is a ladder to climb on the roof of the house. Once you have reached on the roof of the house, that ladder becomes unnecessary for the one who is there. Thus, remember that yoga and the spiritual methodology is necessary for those that have not reached. Therefore, the Tibetan gurus are very sharp here. If the ultimate nature of the mind be realized, which is equivalent to say if the state of samadhi has been fully reached, if one has reached moksha mukti then it is not no longer necessary to listen to religious teachings or to meditate upon religious teachings tibetans because their yoga was part of buddhism they called everything religious teachings which can irk uh, some people because in yoga we insist especially in modern yoga which addresses to the modern Seeker, and especially to people belonging to various denominations as well as to confused spirits, as well as to skeptics, agnostics, atheists, and everyone. We insist on keeping yoga separate from religion. We don't want to keep yoga as Hinduism or yoga as Buddhism or yoga as Jainism, or yoga as Sikhism, or any other affiliation to a religion. The Tibetan Gurus didn't have this problem because they were in a context where 90-something percent of the population was Buddhist and accepting very well the Buddhist teachings. And therefore for them yoga, was a sort of esoteric extension of Buddhism. It was like an esoteric part in Buddhism. So that's why for them, the yogis, the Tibetan yogis, did respect the words of the Buddha, the religious teachings. Like even Tibetan yogis, not only Tibetan lamas, would subscribe to the four noble truths for example as defined by the buddha therefore tibetan yoga was fully aligned with the message of the buddha and with buddhism while of course tibetan yoga may have had some extensions which were beyond the tibetan buddhism not opposite to it beyond it For example, many Tibetan yogis were practicing teachings of kundalini yoga which were associated with sexual tantric practices. And they could not do that in the monasteries because the monasteries had the status, the statute also, that people were celibate. The monks that entered in monasteries, they took vows of celibacy. And then it would have meant that one preferential monastery here and there because it had yogis also among its monks it should have had a special permission like in this monastery exceptionally sexual tantric practices are allowed they preferred not to do it this way not to solve the problem this way they preferred that the monks the yogis who were doing such practices they were living near certain monasteries but not in the monastery as inmates of the monastery and thus with this compromise people who wanted to do non-conventional practices they were not strictly speaking part of the monastery they were like auxiliaries like satellites of that monastery. So I'm saying this just to explain once more why in the translation which Ivan Svens did almost a century ago he uses the word religious teachings people say why are you reading to us, Swami about religious teachings aren't we talking about yoga and you said that yoga is not a religion yes I stand by that statement but in Tibet the religious Buddhist teachings were okayed by the yogis and they were considered to be as part of the lore which, in which they lived. And we are talking about the Buddhist teachings. So don't get provoked by words such as religious. If the word religious disturbs you, replace it with spiritual sp- spiritual teachings. If the ultimate nature of the mind be realized, no longer is it necessary to listen to or meditate upon spiritual teachings like laya yoga, yama and niyama, meditation, observation, listening and all those have become useless to somebody who has reached because the method is valid only while you are on the path. When you have completed the path, the method has become useless. The method is a method. Yoga is not an absolute thing in itself. Yoga is an instrument. It is a prop. It serves to the purpose to get you from point A to point B. But when you are in point B, what's the usefulness of yoga? Nil, zilch. Ah, you are going to say, even Swami Shivananda because he was obese, he would have obtained some benefits from doing some banda, Bandha, or <coughs> something, Hatha Yoga, and yes, of course, not spiritual benefits, because his state of Samadhi wouldn't have been deepened even with an iota because of doing some Bandhas additionally. Maybe Swami Shivananda or Swami Vivekananda of India or others and others. Maybe if in their old age they would have chosen to practice some Hatha Yoga, which somehow they didn't find the motivation to do, they could have extended their lifespan, they could have enjoyed a better standard of vitality and health, and other such things. But it would have had absolutely no contribution to their spiritual realization. The spiritual realization is spiritual realization ...is spiritual realization. There is nothing to add or to subtract from it... ...because it's a realization. Once you realized, ...how can you over-realize? That is, either you realize or you don't realize. Therefore, here the Tibetan yogis are very clear... ...although this is such a sharp and somewhere dangerous statement... Because here comes the danger in all the New Age subcultures. Here you get some Zvadhisthvanistic hysteric who takes some drugs and has a hallucination that Jesus comes to them in a golden chariot like Cinderella and tells them you are enlightened, which is just a Zvadhisthvanistic vision produced by some demons for a practical joke. And then they go out of that stupid experience, claiming that now they have reached spiritual realization. And the corollary will immediately jump in on this train. Now you have got the ultimate excuse for being lazy and inert spiritually, because I have reached spiritual realization. There's no more need for spiritual practices or teachings for me while this statement was definitely true for Milarepa and Tsongkhapa and moving it on other spiritual meridians it would have been valid for Ramakrishna and Mahanandamai it definitely is not true for people who delude themselves that is why it is very very important to get some sort of reality check when you deal with this Um, This sort of self-realized, self-enlightened, self-proclaimed spiritual teachers are a very confusing and dangerous reality of Kali Yuga, which very often goes in all the wrong places. Second of the unnecessary things, like now you got the point. Then some things are also unnecessary depending on what has has been acquired. If the unsoluble nature of the intellect be realized, which is the same, it's just a game with words, just using pretentious words. So if the unpollutable nature of the mind be realized, which means the pure consciousness, If it has been realized. It's just saying the same with other words. No longer is it necessary to seek absolution of one's sins. Or to deal with your karma. People go around seeking absolution of their sins. Like let's donate some food to the monks. To gain merit and to relieve our karma. If somebody is... Uh, expecting that they have a difficult karma then they would try to do some rituals or offerings or compensations for diminishing or compensating their karma. Here Tibetan gurus say clearly if indeed you have reached then in that process you have burned your karma. In the moment when like Buddha you have done like this and reached nirvana then it's over all the karma of the 10,000 previous lifetimes is burned out in a jiffy and it's not there anymore therefore one does not need to do that you can ask but Swami Shivananda, Ramakrishna Milarepa himself, to take a Buddhist yogi example, not only a Buddhist lama, but a yogi example, they all of them seemed at some point or another to be burdened with the karma of other people or to have some karmic issues even tens of years after they officially had been proclaimed as enlightened teachers, as spiritually realized beings. It says here, if the, if the totally pure, if the absolutely pure nature of the intellect be realized, no longer is it necessary to seek absolution of one's sins. Why? Because you have obtained absolution already. There is no more sin which can reach that person. But remember that in such cases we are talking about people that have voluntarily, consciously, and deliberately taken upon themselves some temporary karma, which may create physical problems or uh, a crucifixion, like in the case of Jesus, but it will not demote their spiritual realization or status. So when those people would die... All that karma would fall off like a husk, and then the person would be back in the primary clear light. The person would be back into the state of spiritual realization. Therefore, um, these are exceptional cases, and it doesn't it says Swami Shivananda doesn't really have a reason to look for absolution of his sins, and Swami Shivananda doesn't think. That he's got any sins anymore. However, Swami Shivananda may accept some karmic things, but the way this goes is Swami Shivananda may accept for three months or for thirty years some karma hanging on him, not his own, but something which he took over from others. He somehow is aware about it, or maybe not in all details but he is aware that something is there. He is observant enough to look at his daily life and to see some of the effects of that karma, no doubt. And at the same time, he knows if I do this again, it's burned out again. So every time when I do this leap, it's again the, the clock is reset back to zero. And then if I don't do this for 10 years, then I don't reset the clock. It's fine. But therefore, the Buddha has a method of bringing it down to zero again and again. And therefore, he is not really afraid of it. For him, it doesn't mean, oh, there are some sins for which you look compensation or absolution or something. It's a totally different mentality. Here, the Tibetan gurus, they refer to the normal seeker, to the, to the normal mortal, we can say, who is a person who is still petrified somewhere at the deep subconscious level, but their possible sins. It's written in a a bit of a Christian language. I think Ivan Svens tried to translate this text so that British people in the 1920s and 30s could identify with it and read it. Because the Tibetans don't really speak, the Buddhists in general, don't speak about absolution of sins. That's a very, very Christian twist of the phrase. But Ivan Svens used it so that Western readers who in those days were way, way less knowledgeable of Eastern philosophies, mysticism and spirituality so that they can get a bit of a clue of what it is. Everybody is going for liberation, for freedom from karma, for redemption of some sort. For absolution. You know, in Christianity, it was one of the basic fears to die without having received the last rites. Because it was imperiously necessary that last thing before you died, you should have received a final absolution. So you would not go into death with sins, with Sins hanging on you and influences your process of bardo and afterlife. So the terminology is that kind of terminology, but basically this expresses a human general fear. But it is as Abhinavagupta says in front of this reality of Shiva, all the fears of the miseries of samsara disappear. There is once you have reached the Shiva consciousness, you cannot be afraid of the miseries of samsara. In the meaning that there will be, you will go to hell. You cannot tell this to Abhinavagupta or to Kshemaraja. They don't believe in it anymore. Not because it's not true for the regular mortal, but because for their level of consciousness, this reality no longer exists. And that is why here the Tibetans, of course, talk at a high level, comparing it with a regular believer, with a regular believer from the Tibetan society who was an obsessive Buddhist faithful who would go around looking for redemption of karma, for absolution of sins. But you wouldn't see Milarepa doing that. And that's not because Milarepa is not religious anymore. It's because Milarepa is, has reached. Milarepa is ultra-religious and he doesn't need it anymore. While the normal people would crowd to listen to religious teachings, to meditate on spiritual teachings, Milarepa can stay in the kitchen and prepare himself a hot chocolate. And people say this Milarepa is a glutton and not a spiritual person. Everybody was flocking to listen to some teachings. Milarepa is on the roof of the house already. He doesn't need to flock to any teachings anymore. He has done his flocking in previous years, decades and centuries. His work is done already. As you can see, the Tibetans have a painfully rational clear it's crystal clear like it makes perfect sense they do not accept any ambiguity and ridicule. for them spirituality can be explained to a large extent yes there are some things which the mind cannot embrace but besides those things everything in spiritual practice and in metaphysics must make sense I love this thing about the Tibetan yogis that they long for clarity and they will not take bullshit. That's one of the biggest problems of the modern spirituality often called New Age. That it's full of ambiguous bullshit. The Tibetans didn't take it, didn't buy it, didn't accept it. It's clear. It's crystal clear. On a similar note, Socrates more than 20 centuries, some 23 centuries ago, Socrates said it in a beautiful way. He said, we cannot dispense of reason. Like somebody who tries to be spiritual and is irrational is most probably a terrible hoax. Because first of all, the human being has become superior to the animals Any university course can tell you that by being a rational animal. The first thing which separated us from animality is reason. So spirituality is not destroying reason. Spirituality is using reason as a stepping stone on the way. First you reach a perfect reason. And then there come from God some supra-rational things, as Aurobindo called them, some supramental things, which the mind indeed cannot truly understand. It would have been rational for Jesus not to go to Jerusalem to be crucified if he knew it was coming. And Jesus even tells to Peter, Peter That's the way man think. Like you've said it well, rationally you are true. But now here there is an extra requirement of me, Jesus, which is not rational and which you will not understand with your mind. This one you can understand it only with your heart, only with your spirit. Why is it necessary for me, Jesus, in spite of the obvious bummer, to go to Jerusalem and to have those things happen nevertheless. Therefore, we are not destroying reason, we are building upon reason and transcending reason. That's why this is the main excuse of people that don't have rational intelligence. They say, oh, but you don't need. That's usually not true. You need to have a good rational intelligence and on top of it to be open to the supra-rational, which is a different story altogether. Here comes the third unnecessary thing. Nor is absolution necessary absolution of the sins nor is absolution necessary for one who abides in the state of mental quiescence or samadhi. Like somebody wants to give absolution to somebody who is in ecstasy. It's completely unnecessary. The ecstasy is already representing the absolution of the sins. The ecstasy represents the termination of the karma. The ecstasy is a manifestation of the state of freedom. That's why one doesn't need that. The Christian church, for example, is rabid about the fact that everybody has to commune with Christ. And the only practical way, like the practicing Christians in traditional churches, they have to take communion. Communion on the Sunday Mass is the way to commune with Christ by eating the the body and drinking the blood of the Christ. That's what a practicing Christian has to do. That's the most important practice that you have to do that. But then, Christian saints themselves have asked the question, if that is so important and nobody is exempt from it, Nobody is smart enough to say, oh, I don't need that because I'm good enough. I'm the bishop, I'm the pope, and I don't need it anymore. If nobody is above the law, then what is happening to the saints that lived 30 years alone in the desert? And they died alone in the desert. Therefore, without final rights, without absolution, and without having had access to any church ritual for 20-30 years and then the answer was that there exists a special form of communion which happens through prayer when your prayer reaches perfection then in the prayer there is included communion a sort of a magic communion which comes through prayer and thus The hermits living successfully in the wilderness were indeed exempt from the need to go to the church to take physical communion because they communed in prayer. What do you do if you live in the wilderness and your prayer sucks? And therefore you don't actually get any communion through the prayer because your prayer is a lousy prayer of a very inferior type like it has no quality, you are very bad at the art of prayer, then it will not work and you need to go to take communion. You need to know your own measure not to be infatuated or arrogant and to realize that a bit of modesty and humbleness goes a long way. Therefore, you should not pretend you don't need it when you actually need it as it is being seen so absolution is not necessary for the one who abides in the state of mental quiescence Quiescence or samadhi state of mental quiescence is called in Kashmiri Shaivis visranti appeasement of the mind it corresponds to the state of Nirvikalpa samadhi as described by Patanjali and it represents the first step of entering into the spiritual reality. It represents the state which is alluded to by the great mystics of India when they say Om Shanti 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 that Shanti is appeasement it's quiet sense of the mind and um, it is alluded by Patanjali when he describes yoga as Chitavriti Roda, the arresting of the movements of the mind like the mind rests. This arrest of the mind is the entrance into the states of great Samadhi and here this is alluded at. Number four, the fourth unnecessary thing. For him who has attained the state of unalloyed purity, which is another metaphorical way of describing the Supreme Consciousness, there is no need to meditate upon the path or upon the methods or treading it, for he has already arrived at the goal. It may sound very logical, but it has to be said because in the world of spirituality, that one in a million type of person has to enjoy a different treatment. That one in a million is shepherd, not flock anymore. And therefore, there, it makes a difference and it is useful to know it. Especially in an environment like this one, you would encounter teachers like Milarepa and Tsongkhapa. And you cannot measure them with the same measure with which you measure their disciples. It's simply not correct. It does not apply. Sometimes people, especially in modern times, they tend to miss this thing because we live in a sort of ultra-democracy which is poorly understood. And because of this, people would expect Swami Shivananda. To do what Swami Shivananda wouldn't do anymore. Unfortunately, this state of fact can also be abused the other way around when some people pretend to be in the chair of Swami Shivananda, but in actual fact they are not. And that is why here we have a very slippery thing like it is correct to interpret the reality this way that Tibetan gurus are right but unfortunately this is a very discreet it is a very intuitive reality which addresses to very high levels of spirituality and because of this it's not always possible to validate it and much abuse has been done regarding this In Tibet, the spirituality was so pervasive that we haven't heard any ridiculous story in those centuries where some imposter became, I don't know what, great abbot of some great Tibetan monastery and was praised as some living Buddha while he was a total fake, a total baloney. It did not happen. Somehow the spirituality was so pervasive that uh, a fake person would have stood out immediately and would have been exposed really. Like where is your detachment? Where is your equanimity? Where is this and where is that? However, unfortunately today in the modern spirituality it exists plenty and plenty, that some people uh, would love to enjoy the seat of Swami Shivananda, and exactly as Mel Brooks ridiculously states it in that hilarious comedy of his called History of the World, he pokes his head from time to time in the camera and he says, it's good to be the king. Playing some hypocrisy, some, uh, some irony to Louis XIV or fifteen or sixteen, some medieval king of France. It is exactly the same thing here. Things are coming always with a chain of responsibilities at the same time. Number five if the unreal or illusory nature of cognition be realized, no need is there to meditate upon the state of non-cognition. Like the regular Buddhist pedagogic methodology said the normal knowledge, the regular mental knowledge, intellectual knowledge, Vigyana, like in Vigyana Mayakosha, is not jnana, is not the actual spiritual pure consciousness. If you want in a more conveyable language, we could say the intellect is not the spirit. What you get through the intellect is not what you get through the direct spiritual perception. And because of this, there, is, uh, there are meditations in Buddhism in general, not only in Tibetan Buddhism, where you meditate on knowledge, which is one of the great satisfactions of the mind. Some people can be very tamasic and very dull. And because of this, you come to them and you say, here is a great book, there are some incredible stuff written here. And people say, no, I just want to sleep. Uh, you no, know? this is the tamasic animal who is not even accelerated by intellectual knowledge anymore. And then there are meditations above this level because some people, instead of being like this, they can have an excess of mental curiosity like we Mercurian people, for example. We are always having a sort of Tara type of hunger to know, to know, to know, to know, to know, which usually degenerates in a sort of useless curiosity, in a pathologic curiosity to know all sorts of useless things. So when you die, your brain is like an attic full of shit. You have just accumulated an incredible amount of garbage in your brains and that is making you drown when you die, instead of dying with a simple mind, having let go. Some people are greedy for knowledge, while some people are dull when it comes to knowledge. This addresses, this Buddhist method, was addressing to those people who are hyper-intellectualized. And the hyper-intellectualized people were advised to meditate on the difference between cognition, that is, the intellectual knowledge, and non-cognition, which, of course, would be like Purusha, silence. There is the mind and the no-mind. And people would be advised to study that duality. When you are hyper-intellectual, there is also a sort of a stop technique like the Gurdjieff techniques that your mind goes zoo, 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 zoo. stop! Like don't think about anything. Freeze it. Cut it. And remain in non-cognition. Stop this hysteria of the mind. And thus people would be advised to bring an antidote to this cognition Greed to this cognition hunger by cultivating moments of non-cognition. Like see how good it is from time to time to enjoy some repose. The mind is such a noisy, tiresome machine, machinery. Like if you could stop it by meditation, by tantric orgasms by whatever if you could just stop it what a peace you would enjoy thus there are methods of meditating on cognition versus non-cognition which would be a state of nirvikalpa a state of void but says number five unnecessary thing if the non-reality If the unreal nature of cognition be realized, like I realize that the mind is just a parrot, is just a mill that mills and mills and mills, and therefore I'm not paying any attention to it. Of course, it's necessary when you are in life, because if you don't have a brain and a mind, you can't even return to your bungalow, because you'll lose the way home if you wouldn't have a brain. So, of course, a brain and a mind is necessary to live in this world. But the point is that those people didn't want to have their lives ruled by this mind, which very arrogantly pretends to be the leader of your microcosm. No, you are not the leader of my microcosm. My Buddha nature, which is non-cognition, my Buddha nature, which is void is the true master of the home, is the true hub of the wheel, is the true center of everything. But the mind, when I'm going to shop potatoes or when I'm driving my bicycle back home, the mind is absolutely necessary and not more, more than necessary. It's inevitable and uh, urgently necessary. So, if the unreal nature of cognition if the unreal nature of cognition be realized no need is there to meditate upon the state of non-cognition like then the duality itself is solved by the fact that you have realized you have transcended cognition or non-cognition it's a slight thing but it is of importance in some systems of spiritual practice. Six, which is a very tantric, unnecessary thing. If the non-reality or illusory nature of obscuring passions be realized, no need is there to seek for their antidote. Normally, Buddhism describes the so-called obscuring passions. Remember, not passions. You can have a passion for Tara. You can have a passion for the king of the world from Shambhala. You can have a passion, you can be passionate for meditation. Those are okay. The other ones are called obscuring passions, passions which when they arise in your mind, they obscure the truth, they hide the ultimate truth. Like you get angry, you see red in front of your eyes and you are incapable to see the nature of the divine consciousness. You are becoming depressed, jealous, Greedy or whatever you are becoming, there you are in the middle of an obscuring passion. In Buddhism, tantric or non-tantric, of course the solution is find the antidote. Every obscuring passion is ultimately like a sort of a poison and every poison must be found for For every poison, you must find an antidote to that poison. So, you know, what is the antidote to anger? What is the antidote to fear? What is the antidote to ignorance? What is the antidote to selfishness? And so on and so forth. The beginning of this, You find it even in the level one of Agama. It's Yama and Niyama. Yama and Niyama is the first step of finding the antidotes. Live by Yama and Niyama and you are living with the antidotes. In all spirituality, not only in Buddhist spirituality, people are looking for the antidotes of the obscuring passions. Even if you are five millimeters from nirvana and an obscuring passion can get the best of you. The proof being that Buddha himself in the last night when he almost was there, he was 99.9% enlightened and he had the final attack. Then the demon came on full power and Buddha got tempted most bitterly like by the guardian of the gate then it was the last and biggest test and buddha fortunately for him and for many others passed that test successfully and then it was over then there was no more obscuring passion from that standpoint But otherwise, until you are 99% there, don't lower your guards. Because the obscuring passions are still theoretically possible. In Christianity, they go even further than this. They say, even if you think you have reached enlightenment... There is no enlightenment in Christianity. Even if you think you have reached salvation, perfection, uh, emancipation, absolution, the kingdom of heaven, whatever you would like to call it, don't bet on it. Nobody should bet on it. The rule which is given by the fathers of the desert, by the saints who wrote the Philokalia, is you will not be sure unless... Or until you die. That's why in Christianity, no man or no woman has ever been proclaimed saint during their lifetime. It's simply not possible. First you have to die and till the last second you have to demonstrate an exemplary existence. This is how we can be sure that the devil slash The obscuring passions did not get the better of you, even in the last moment when you thought everything was safe and well. This vision is in a certain way more modest and more humble. And uh, in many of the last years of my life, I have come to subscribe to it, seeing historical and not only examples of people involved in yoga who had a high alleged spiritual status and then they tumbled off their pedestals in shameful ways. And because of that, uh, this has to be verified in various other ways. But now let's come back to the original statement. If the non-reality of obscuring passions be realized, no need is there to seek their antidote. The antidote has to be sought after in the moment when one is under the influence of not realizing what those obscuring passions are. In the moment when the duality has been surpassed, then this becomes a no subject, a non-interesting, a non-relevant subject from that point on. That is why this is very much in one of the veins of the tantric path. The tantric path is not trying to simply destroy the passions. Of course, the most typical and the most argued upon being the sexual desire, the lust, Normally you would say if you have a lot of sexual desire and lust, that's a poison, that's an obscuring passion because people due to lust, they committed murders, They, they provoked wars between communities like the war of Troy, you know, with Helen of Troy and all that. And therefore, lust is an obscuring passion which wipes away the reason of people and makes them obscure. And you have to find the antidote to it. But the tantric tradition would say there is another way of dealing with the obscuring passions and that is to see their true nature. Like if you can discover that the sexual pleasure is the bliss of Shiva and Shakti and therefore it is divine and you can experience it like a communion with the union of Shiva and Shakti then it's not a problem lust and sex is not an obscuring passion it is a communion to the divine nature of the female and the male parts of this universe thus there is another way, and this other way has been alluded to here. If the non-reality of obscuring passions be realized, no need is there to seek for their antidote. This unfortunately, and it's unfortunately in only in a very skewed way, leads to the fact that most spiritual people in this world, and I'm talking now about the grand champions, the grand masters, in the moment when they have reached definitive states of spiritual realization, they kind of froze in any moral and ethical development or perfecting because it was not necessary anymore. Like whatever moral and ethical work, such as, I want to become more compassionate, you have done until you reached the full state of enlightenment, that's what you've got. Because most probably, after you will reach the state of enlightenment, you will find out that compassion or no compassion is actually one and the same thing. And therefore, there is no more motivation to eliminate the obscuring passions or to cultivate the noble things that is because you have surpassed the duality it is hilarious then that people make efforts one way or another way Abhinavagupta goes as far as to say since this universe is Shiva to the tiniest atom then why do people want to get liberated liberated from what because everything is Shiva So what's the meaning of getting liberated? From what? Even the liberation becomes a hilarious concern in this field and one even has to be aware when you talk to people that they would not have the same spiritual level. I remember There was a time in my own life when I was talking to some people who did not participate into my own spiritual journey and those people were identifying me according to their vision. There were some people who knew me years ago and they were viewing me according to what they believed was their reality about me. And one of them comes to me and says, When are you going to get liberated? And my standard answer in that period was liberated from worries. Liberated from what? Like I always tended to be ironic, cynical and dismissive because it even irked me, it even irritated me a little bit that people talked about liberation in a fanatic way, in a sectarian way. You could see that they were brainwashed and they did not understand what they were talking about. And they were talking about like somebody, a a prince on a white horse coming and saving the world. Svadistanistic spirituality, phantasmagoric understanding of spirituality. And I had the tendency to splash them with cold water back. Like I I really had, I had almost a cynical pleasure to give cruel replies back to those people in the hope that they will get jolted and maybe realize I'm talking bullshit. But of course they never realized. And then I calmed down and I realized, okay, don't try to wake people too suddenly because they don't see what you see and they just live in a certain mentality of theirs but therefore understand that here we are having a big we are crossing a big line there and uh, in the moment when the nature of a certain of any obscuring passion has been realized as being illusory then no antidote is necessary. It is said that Ramana Maharishi himself sometimes had nocturnal emissions, like therefore not fulfilling 100% the great ideal of brahmacharya. Guess what? Ramana Maharishi never said, oh, I have to go to Swami Babananda, to learn the holy mudras to stop this shameful nocturnal emissions of mine he didn't give a rat's ass on nocturnal emissions or loss of ojas because he was already very enlightened and for him it didn't make any difference he was on the roof of the house and these were issues for practitioners he was not a practitioner anymore he was an adept he was a realized being That's why the perspective changes very vastly from the standpoint of those. The unnecessary thing number seven. If all phenomena be known to be illusory, no need is there to seek or to reject anything. It's almost too good to be true. It's so great that you can ask yourself who, who did really manage to live like that. Like if all things are illusory or let's put it in the Kashmiri Shaivistic because all things are illusory means reducing everything to zero. That's the nihilistic Buddhist view. Everything equal Shunya, void. The Kashmiri Shaivis said, why do you want to bring everything to zero? Bring everything to everything. Bring everything to God. It's still a unification. But why unify everything down here when you can unify everything up here? So the Kashmiri Shaivas would not say everything is illusory. They will say everything is Shiva, which is equally good. And they thought it's even better. Therefore... If all phenomena be known to be illusory, or all phenomena be known to be Shiva, no need is there to seek or to reject anything. However, I would like to see you tested on this one, if any one of you thinks that you are getting close to this one, if you would have, for example, a simple toothache. A toothache is Shiva. It's wonderful. Enjoy it. Bathe in it. Would you do that? Everybody runs away from pain like from the devil. Everybody runs away from depression, from loneliness, from sorrow, from all the painful and negative things. But they are Shiva. All of them are illusory, which means zero, and all of them are Shiva, which means everything. Why bother? There's no difference theoretically between pleasure and pain. Either you get a toothache or you get a lovely orgasm. It's the same. It ought to be the same. It wasn't the same for anybody, believe me. All, Even Jesus suffered on the cross. And that's why this is a bit of a... Black and white, it's like 100% there. Very few people would have had the gall to say, I am there 100%. Therefore, we need to preserve some shades of grey that for many, even enlightened beings, there is a sort of desensitizing about this. Like the black and white thing becomes much more blurred and like not so important but it doesn't mean that everybody in spirituality can live completely without it ramakrishna died of cancer and he was in agony his body was obviously agonizing and everybody was decrying it and was pitying him And Ramakrishna said, don't worry about me, when the soul is immersed in the magnitude of the state of samadhi, the body is far, far away at the periphery somewhere, and only a very dim echo of the pain in the body reaches to your consciousness. But he didn't say, no echo reaches, or actually, I feel the pain as pleasure. He actually admitted that there was some pain, but he said a very dim echo. Like he said, it's diminished to a large extent and therefore it has become bearable. It is tolerable. He didn't say it's same as ecstasy. If Ramakrishna did not manage to identify his cancer pain with ecstasy, then you can ask yourself, who did it? Ramakrishna, who was nicknamed by Romain Roland, the prince of the yogis, like a prince among the yogis. Even among the yogis, Ramakrishna is a giant. And if Ramakrishna, dying of cancer, still witnessed to some torment, and probably was heard, now and then, wailing or moaning due to the suffering, then you can rephrase. This sentence here is referring to the absolute perfect ideal, but human beings live it to a certain extent. Even that shade of grey, even that extent, of course, makes a huge difference in life. So if all phenomena be known to be illusory or in Kashmiri language to be God, no need is there to seek or to reject anything. This can make the enlightened being sound a bit dull, like an animal, like you have no more moral discrimination, you have no more preferences. It's not really so... When we analyze the lives of Milarepa and Mananda Mai, of Ramakrishna and St. Teresa of Avila, we discover that although they were at that spiritual level, they were perfectly moral and ethical people, although their understanding. So they are not dull animals, indifferent to ups and downs, to victory and defeat, to morality or immorality, To pleasure and pain or anything similar. Number eight, if sorrow and misfortune be recognized to be blessings, no need is there to seek happiness. That's another hard one. Very few people would be able to live with equanimity between pleasure and pain. In the same way, in life, very few people would be able to see that everything is a spiritual test. Therefore, sorrow and misfortune are blessings. And thus, why seek for happiness then? Everything is Shiva. Everything is God. Happiness or unhappiness, that's just a dualistic way of splitting things. Here, In this place, the yogis are going fully non-dualistic. This is full Advaita, Tibetan style. And this is so difficult to understand. When Milarepa wrote his final conclusions on his life, Milarepa said, When I look back at my life, I see that the people who killed my father and did misfortune to my mother and obliged me to take the path of black magic and murder, they actually contributed to my evolution more than Marpa, my guru. They pushed me more along the path than Marpa himself. And therefore, he said, the people who did all this shit, although they may have been unconscious and unaware of what they did, They have been more efficient than my main guru in this life. And he said, I can do nothing but bow down with reverence in front of them. Because if those people wouldn't have killed my father, did injustice to my mother, and forced me to become a rogue, I would have become an anonymous Tibetan householder in the 12th century. But because those people pushed me beyond the limit, I finally found the way to nirvana. I realized nirvana and now I am a free spirit and I have conquered the Alpha and the Omega. I have conquered everything there is to be conquered between heaven and earth and therefore I am grateful to them. Thank you to them because they kicked me in the ass and they took me out of the comfort zone, of the mediocrity. At least something exceptional happened. That is a very, very difficult to swallow philosophy. It says, if sorrow and misfortune be recognized to be blessings. Why? Because there is no light without shadow. In the moment when you turn on a light, you create shadows somewhere, somehow, because of that light. Therefore, there is no light without shadow. There is no hill without valley. There is no place of eternal happiness without challenges. That's only a utopia. That's a children's story told to the Zvadistanistic people to lure them into a Disneyland which is called the Kingdom of Heaven. There isn't such a place because it contradicts the law of polarity. If you have a polarity here, there must be a polarity there. In Tibet, you had people like Milarepa and you also had gigantic black magicians. Or as I said in the spiritual tests lecture two days ago, that proverb which says all the devils are hiding in the monasteries. Where there are people that pray 10 hours per day, there are also satanists near them. Because when you rise a hill, you descend a valley simply by relative comparison. There is no hill without a valley. Everything would have to be flat so that you wouldn't have hills or valleys. But in the moment when you have a tempo which is yang, you will have to have a tempo which goes in. When something goes plus, something else will have to go minus by the law of balance. And therefore, the sorrow and misfortune are exactly like a low tide. There is a wave, but before the wave strikes or after the wave has blown itself, there comes an ebb. The sea withdraws. That withdrawing is sorrow and misfortune. And if there is no sorrow and misfortune, there is no luck and happiness. Therefore, it's impossible to separate them. Either you decide to stay in the middle where there is no sorrow and no joy, which some people would consider very boring, Or if you accept the dual nature of this universe, that the universe is yin and yang, that the universe is the dance of Shiva and Shakti, there are two which dance, then automatically you have to accept the existence of the good and of the dark at the same time. And you will never be able to build a world which is made only of protons, And contains no electrons. It's not possible. Thus, sorrow and misfortune are of the same nature with blessings, ultimately. But it's very difficult to see it. It's part of the undulation of the universe. The valleys are part of the hills. Because if somebody would obliterate the valleys, then you would have no hills. As long as there is a little dent between two heights, that's a valley, between two hills. The only way to make all the valleys in this world disappear would be to make all the hills disappear. And therefore, they are connected. Once you've started undulating the universe and it goes wobbly, sinus-like, that sinus nature has light and darkness, and you can't stop it anymore. And therefore, if sorrow and misfortune be recognized to be blessings, they are just the downside of the hills. The valleys are just part of the hills. They are just the foot of the, the feet of the hills. Then there is no need to seek happiness. Seeking happiness in this vadistanistic way that, oh, there will be a place where there is no pain. But actually, when we look at the life of the great saints in the last 2,000 years, in all of them we see some pain. Which are the saints that had no pain? Therefore, isn't it a utopia? Ah, that you say beyond pleasure and pain, those people found a third state of existence. Something which is neither pleasure nor pain, but transcends it and which is the golden middle, which is that transcendent, yes. And that we define as bliss, yes. But it is not of the same nature with pleasure and pain. Many people expect that spirituality is a total cessation of pain by creating a non-stop pleasure. That's unrealistic. Wake up. It never happens that way unless you manage to level everything to full zero. And then you are also not part of this world anymore. When the yin and yang stops, your subtle breath doesn't go in Ida nadi or in Pingala nadi anymore. It goes in Sushumna nadi. And then, as Shiva Svarodaya, a text of yoga, says, You die because you are not fit to live in this world anymore. This world is a world of plus and minus. Either you accept plus and minus or else die. You don't belong to this world. The law of this world is that it is yin and yang and yin and yang. And that's it. Nine. If the unborn or uncreated nature of one's own consciousness be realized, no need is there to practice transference of consciousness, which refers to the the technique of POVA in the moment of death, what you learned, those of you who did, in the art of dying. In the art of dying, we said one of the radical Tibetan things was at the time of death, be good, be lucid, be trained and do pova. And that's it. That's success. But the Tibetan yogis had got even beyond that. They say if the unborn nature of one's own consciousness, if it is unborn, it means it's not going to die. Because only what is born... Has to die. Only what has a beginning has to die. In India, the same concept exists. Atman, the super, the supreme consciousness, is called in some Vedantic text Aja, Aja, like non-born. It's unborn. But the funny thing is that in Sanskrit, Aja means also a goat, the male goat. And uh, the billy goat or whatever you call it. And therefore, there are a lot of games of words as hamsa means a swan. And there are lots of things about the swan, Paramahamsa, and all that. There, there are some games of words, less frequent but still done in the Vedantic tradition about aja. That people are like goatees, like goats. And nobody seems to understand I know of a Swami who even got from his guru the name Swami Ajatananda. Like it would be in European language Swami Gautananda. Which would sound pretty ridiculous unless you know that Ajah is an epithet for Atman, for the Supreme Consciousness. So if the unborn nature of one's own consciousness, it's not born, therefore is never going to die. It is eternal. It is absolute. It is perfect, immutable, infinite. If the unborn nature of one's own consciousness be realized, which means you are not in the mind, you are in the atma, in the ajja, then no need is there to practice transference of consciousness. Like Ramakrishna does not need to do pova. That's why Indian gurus somehow forgot this technique along the centuries. The technique was imported in Tibet from India. As the Tibetan gurus freely admit, we have it from India. But because of the troubled history of India, somehow it got forgotten. Today nobody teaches pova, Indian style. Pova was exported in Tibet... And luckily was it exported in Tibet because the Tibetans preserved it while the Indians managed to lose it in between their fingers. And somehow it got lost in the midst of time. And Indian gurus, they didn't go desperately like, oh my God, oh my God, we didn't get the pova, we don't have the pova, what are we going to do? Because they said, if you are in Samadhi like Ramakrishna, when you die, you don't do pova. You go in samadhi. That's equivalent to pova. Abhinava Gupta doesn't need to do pova. Ramakrishna doesn't need to do pova. They just go in maha samadhi. That's the end for Swami Shivananda. It's called maha samadhi. Even for Buddha, it was not called pova. It is called the maha nirvana or the maha samadhi of the Buddha in that reclining position of his. And therefore, that's also unnecessary. Like there have been, for example, Ramakrishna, as well as Ramana Maharishi, they did not die in a sitting position by all the yogic standards. For Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna was complaining sorely that he entered in Samadhi too often, too much, everywhere, all the time, and he couldn't stop himself from going in samadhi. Therefore, for Ramakrishna, when he passed away, even if he was lying like this on a blanket, it didn't matter anymore, precisely because he was Ramakrishna. When you have realized the unborn nature of the consciousness, there is no need to practice pova at the time of death or anything you have surpassed that need you have surpassed that level you enter in the consciousness of Shiva and then that's the end of all of it, there is no need for gimmicks and technologies and engineering things one is beyond that finally the number 10 and last for tonight If only the good of others be sought in all that one does, no need is there to seek benefit for oneself. That's a very subtle one. If one would reach indeed selflessness, total abnegation, total selflessness, like everything you do is like the Christ. That's the very definition of the Christ. Jesus is the Christ because he is defined like a gigantic divine spirit that gave himself entirely for all the world, for everybody, for the most wretched, even for people whom he didn't know. Like his compassion was total and his sacrifice went total. When one is ready to go like that, then there is no need to seek for your own happiness. There is a movie which is taken from a piece of text, taken from the Declaration of Independence of the United States. It uses an expression uh, put on paper by the founding fathers of the U.S. of A, which is called the pursuit of happiness, That every human being has the God-given right to pursue happiness. The pursuit of happiness is legitimate. Every human being can seek for happiness, even by the primary constitution of the USA. But Tibetan yoga goes beyond that. It says there is no need for any pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is the mentality of limited people. It reflects selfishness. When you are selfish, you pursue happiness. You are happiness. In the moment when you are like Christ, you are happiness. As Jesus said, I am the way, the path, I am the path, the truth and the light or whatever the words exactly were. And therefore, what need is there? To pursue any happiness when you are Sat Chit Ananda existence consciousness and the bliss if you have reached at that level of consciousness the pursuit of happiness is not necessary anymore because one has reached to the a place where there is no distinction between happiness and unhappiness one has reached to a fulfillment which is beyond happiness or unhappiness. And that is why this final one is beautiful in its own way because it says you want to reach to a place where you don't have to strive desperately and selfishly. Oh, I want to be happy. What wouldn't I give to be happy? As the Dalai Lama says in one of his famous discourses, he says if you don't live at least a little, maybe not 100% like here, but he says, if you don't live at least a little for the benefit of other human beings, of other sentient beings, you are living a meaningless life which can contain no lasting happiness. Like Dalai Lama quotes from the Buddhist teachings, we say the way to reach some lasting happiness is to seek happiness for others, ultimately. Translate that in the sexual teachings of the Kama Sutra. If you have sex only to obtain your orgasm, you are selfish. The way to do it is to make love, to obtain the other one's orgasm, happiness, pleasure. Then... There is no need for you to seek it anymore because you get it indirectly. You get it anyway. The man or the woman who learns to make love selflessly, altruistically, like a sacrifice. Like I give myself to please you. I would do anything to please you. He or she that makes love like that is a person who doesn't need to search for happiness, for pleasure, because they have reached it already. It's embedded. It is a package deal. You've got it already. In the same way, in the moment when the benefit of other sentient beings or of all sentient beings be sought, be followed, then there is no need to seek benefit for oneself. The Christ has the ultimate benefit. Although He seems to be the one that gives everything, including His own life, and some people, selfish people, will say, Jesus, what a joke, what a loser. Jesus Himself says, All power on earth and in heaven has been given to me now and therefore this and this and that. Therefore, did he lose? He didn't lose. He has reached way, way more than that. Therefore, this is the bodhisattvic ideal, the Christ-like consciousness... It's not black and white. Many people immediately give up and they say, I cannot be like Jesus. I am not any fucking Bodhisattva. Don't tempt me with those because I am just a selfish person. Could you do it 5%? You cannot be 100% like Christ. What about 5%? Therefore, remember, nothing is black or white black and white are the two ends of the scale which are idealistic they are impractical ideals as in the laws of yin and yang in the very first month of yoga there is nothing which is hundred percent yin or hundred percent yang yin contains yang and yang contains yin therefore It's always, you can reach 99%, not 100%. Therefore, don't even try. The ideals are put there only as guiding lights. Remember that beautiful Arabian proverb, which says if you want to guide your chariot straight, attach your chariot to a star, because only the stars keep you straight. People say, but I can't attach my chariot to a star. It's too far away. It's too high up. Yes, that's why ideals exist. That's why archetypes exist. We can never quite reach them, but they keep us straight. They make our path straight precisely because we are guiding ourselves after something which is immutable and perfect. Maybe the Christ-like ideal is too perfect from your standpoint. But by guiding yourself after it, you can live your life straight. Your path can be straight. In the same way, these, these statements of Tibetan yoga, they can sound very radical and perfectionistic. But remember that ultimately, they are guidelines to try to reach even Jesus says, "Be perfect as your Father in heaven is, who can be perfect?" Was Francis of Assisi perfect? He died in pretty pathetic ways, and he was sick, and he was, you no, know, like if you really want to make a cynical, sarcastic analysis of any great saint of Christianity or Buddhism or, you can always find something imperfect, pathetic a bit ridiculous, a bit something. That's not the point because we do not expect in the physical world to find a hundred percent yang or a hundred percent yin. Perfection does not exist in the physical world. It's only a guiding light to which we aspire, but we never reach quite that perfection. It is only like the guiding light for the sailors, it's like a star, like the north star, the pole star. You don't ever touch the pole star, but you guide yourself by it. This being said, we have finished the chapter about the unnecessary things. I left it especially after the ten necessary things. Just to show you how beautifully the Tibetans meditating. They twisted it around. Showing one side and showing the other side. And there are just some two paragraphs left. So maximum I will see if I want to do both of them. In case I will skip one of them. Then one or two more satsangs consecrated to the Tibetan. Yoga. Any one of you has special desires about what you'd like me to touch? I have already some of my own wishes and I have planned a few of the coming themes. But if you have any, if you feel any need for your spiritual evolution of having something commented in such satsangs, please communicate it to me or to your teachers and make sure they will send it forth to me. And I will see to which extent I can touch such subjects during this season's satsangs. As we do usually with this, let's remain a couple of minutes in silent contemplation, allowing the mind to go peaceful so that we can conclude these teachings in a traditional, in a harmonious way. And that will do. With this, we conclude our satsang tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining. And see you in the following satsangs. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.